Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and we'd like to thank you for joining us as we kick off Season 2 of our podcast series. This season is dedicated to the memory of my mother, Cheryl Struble, who has walked on to her next life. Our podcast is focused on the amazing history that abounds us here in Northern Michigan. And although we have touched on some of the Native American history of the area, I feel it's time to recognize and discuss the thousands of years that the indigenous peoples, specifically the Adawa tribe, inhabited this region prior to and after the arrival of the first French voyageurs in the early 1600s. Today is my distinct pleasure to welcome to our program the Director of the Department of Repatriation, Archives and Records for the Little Traverse Bands of Adawa Indians, Eric Hemingway. Thanks for joining us today, Eric. Thanks for having me here. Eric, can you tell us a little bit about your job with the tribe? Well, I'll give you the elevator speech. Yeah. Um, so my job is Director of Archives and Records for Little Traverse Bay Bands of Odawa Indians, one of 12 federally recognized tribes here in the state of Michigan. And basically, my job is history. And that's not telling you much, but... That's what uh, we're looking for. <laughs> it's collecting uh, historic materials and using those historic materials to support the tribal government. Uh, and its citizens, and to also create historical educational materials, such as exhibits, curriculums, signs, programs, professional developments, media, publications, uh, wherever there's history of the Odawa, it's where we go. We, we never know where we're going to go or what the work is going to entail. Sometimes it might be heavy on signage or heavy on exhibits, so um, we just try to keep open and keep flexible and just try to tell a good story. Uh, do you feel it's uh, fair to say that you are like the official historian of the tribe at this point? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> no that's, that's I, I, I uh, shy away from any official title. Um, okay. There's lots of historians. There's lots of storytellers within the tribe. I'm just one of many uh, historians and one of many storytellers. Great. Uh, you and I appeared in uh, George Colburn's Young Hemingway. That's where I first kind of came into contact mm-hmm. with you and learned of your, of your expertise here. Your segment in the film, uh, for me, was very powerful. It kind of inspired my thirst for more knowledge about the history of the Adawa tribe, along with the other tribes that have inhabited the region over the millennium since the end of the last ice age, approximately 10,000 years ago. Uh, We have a Hemingway conference this year, as you know, and the title is Hemingway and the Indians, which is something we've had to sort of explain to the international crowd as the term Indian is not universally accepted as being politically correct. Two years ago, when we were planning this event that has now been canceled two years in a row due to COVID, unfortunately, Frank Edwigishik encouraged us to use the term Indians, as this is the home to the Little Travers Bands of Odawa Indians. What is the term you are most comfortable with when we're referring to the area's indigenous people? The term I'm most comfortable with personally, and this is all personal preference, so you could have 10 Native individuals present and they're going to all give you 10 different answers and they're all right. So I prefer the name of the tribe, the Odawa, mm-hmm. or Anishinaabe, but Indian is a very complicated term. It's a legal term. It's written into the Constitution. It's written into treaties. It's written to legal agreements, uh, tribal constitutions. So it's a term that has a lot of meaning. It has a lot of history. Yet at the same time, it's an Anglo term. It's, it's a term you know used by people from other places other than here and Turtle, or Turtle Island, what we call North America. So it's hard to move away from. I, I am not offended when I hear the term Indian, but I prefer Odawa or Anishinaabe. Okay. I try to use that as much as I can when we're referencing back. According to archaeologists, the first group of Native Americans to visit this area dates back approximately 5,000 years. 
They are categorized as the late archaic people that relied heavily on hunting for sustenance and were more nomadic. Then followed by the initial woodland Inuits that built more permanent settlements and were more diversified in their ability to make tools and gather food. And finally around 800 AD, the late woodland natives who were still very proficient hunters but could live primarily by fishing and gathering. Is any of this consistent with your sense of Native American history? No. All right. <laughs> no, it's not. It's this very, a very Western idea of, of Native peoples in this area. And this is something we've been, you know, dealing with for generations is this idea of who, who are the first peoples. And for I've been in my job now 16 years. So uh, got a little bit of time under my belt. And for a large portion of that time, I'd say about seven years, I did uh, repatriation under a federal law, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA. And this is a federal law that enables tribes and, and direct descendants to reclaim ancestral human remains from federal agencies and any institutions that have received federal funding. So this is all I did for about seven years is work on these claims for people. And some of these people are thousands of years old that we were wanting back for uh, return to the earth. And in doing this, when you're talking with an institution that has an individual that's 3,000 years old, and they ask you, how do you know that this person is you know, part of your lineage? How, why so much effort to have this individual or individuals returned and reburied? And this all goes back to my own personal upbringing and you know, growing up in an Odawa community, being part of an Odawa family, of our histories of who we are from ourselves, that we were here first, uh, we've always been Odawa, Anishinaabe people. From day one, we were never archaic or late woodland. These are terms labeled on us by Western scientists. So coming from that angle, I was able to have a pretty strong base on why we were doing this, that this is who we are, our beliefs, our traditions, and you know our, our history. And never, ever growing up have I heard these terms in our household of a late archaic and, and woodland and it was only until I started to do this work professionally, I started to learn these terms. And it just didn't click. It didn't, it didn't, it wasn't cohesive to, to my um, upbringing and beliefs and a lot of other beliefs of other Anishinaabe people in the Great Lakes as well. Like, that's not, that's not who we are. We're Anishinaabe people. We've been here since day one. So that's my, that's my take on it. And we have worked really hard and diligently to get our ancestors back from various museums and agencies all across the country um, from Michigan. And this is an effort a lot of tribes are, are engaged in. They take it very seriously. They have departments and resources and employees who do this work. And I was you know, very blessed and privileged to uh, do this work for seven years. I don't do it anymore, uh, but for a time, that's all I did. And we've, like, we've returned individuals that are 3,000 years old, 500 years old. Uh, sometimes it's just pieces of an individual, you know, a spinal piece, a, a femur, and sometimes it's entire villages, 60 people, 70 people. You just never know, but we all treat it with the same amount of respect that that's our ancestor, and they need to be put back into the ground um, regardless of their age. And that's, that's, that's why it's so important to have you on this program, and hopefully uh, you get the exposure in other forms of me media too, uh, because what's written out there really is from a Western point of view. 90% of the written stuff that's out there really comes from, you know, yeah, it's just how it's been. And I've went through the, you know, I'm a graduate of Harbor Springs High School and I grew up in Cross Village. And everything I've learned about this type of history was from my, my community and my home. And, you know, going through and 
not really hearing the narrative in the public space, you know, in school about the Odawa, certainly not pre-contact or, you know, pre-European contact. Mm -hmm. There was hardly anything at all about, you know, natives pre-contact. So, but there's been a big shift in the last, I'd say, 20 years where institutions and whether it's a museum or a college, a university, even public schools are moving towards having the tribes tell that story. And, and that's a real refreshing shift. Yeah. And how strong is that sense of history among the tribe? And that's something that, you, that like you said, you shared it in your household. It's something that's talked about quite openly and, and passionately, probably. I, I can't say, you know, throughout other communities or other families and individuals within the tribe. Um, it's, it's so, it varies so much from, from family to family, community to community. I don't want to speak on behalf of any of those individuals. I'm just going based on what what I grew up in. And sure. I was very lucky to be in this environment in the 80s and 90s out in Cross Village where there was a large Odawa population and with, not just within my home, but my immediate community there. And these stories were readily shared. But also it was a real powerful time, too, that the tribe was going through its federal reaffirmation process and that the tribe was moving towards this direction of greater sovereignty and self-government. And essentially, we had to prove to the federal government that we were a tribe, which may seem silly, but that's is what we had to do in order to get uh, our trust relationship with the federal government reestablished. And so my mom was on the one of the first tribal councils. She was a secretary, heavily involved in this movement. I, I don't want to use the term politics because it was a lot more than that. It was a it was a civil rights movement, a human rights movement, and she was there, and which meant I was there. So we were steeped in this type of history. We were looking for this history and tribal elders were coming out and telling these stories and being very open about it. So I was lucky, you know, I was there at that time to just absorb this. I was, you know, a young boy, but man, the dividends are paying off now. You know, I can like have some street credit. like, oh, I knew that guy or that <laughs> woman, or I, even though I was like six or seven, but I was there and these things, you know, of history and place were being relayed so I, I was fortunate. I, I, I really, really count my blessings every day to be part of that community and that, that environment. Uh, but as far as other families, you know, those stories are everywhere, you know, and it, a lot of it's very personal that, you know, my, my grandparents are from this area or my great-great-grandmother's from this one town. And, um, you know, we have these deep roots established in Cross Village or Middle Village, um, Harbor Springs. So those family histories are certainly there as well. And uh, sort of uh, relate to that because I come from a family of armchair historians. My grandfather was never formally trained or anything, but just sitting around listening to him and, and his history was always so very accurate. So it kind of instilled that upon me. A, I love that sense of history, but B, I want to accurate history too. And that's something I really strive for is to make sure I'm recording accurate history. Uh, as you know, I'm part of the Michigan Hemingway Society and Ernie Mainland, who's recently passed away, he said, you know, once something's written and then plagiarized the second time, it becomes history. It becomes fact. And that's, that's the unfortunate thing with history. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, you know, being a professional historian and seeing some of these things that have changed or it's one or two things are written about it and then all of a sudden it becomes the fact, like you say. And you know for, know for a fact that that's not 100% right or half of the truth is missing, but that's Native history. You know, half of the truth or 90% of the truth is, from our perspective is often missing. So this is a big push throughout Indian country to just get our perspective out there. And, you know, this isn't revisionist history or rewriting the book. It's adding to the book. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's adding to the story. I'm not saying that this didn't happen, but what, how did this happen through a different lens? And what are the other pieces to the puzzle? What are the other pieces to the story that are often omitted? And usually that's the native perspective. 
in you know the United States. And it's hard because Native people to this day are roughly one percent of the population in the United States. And so when you're one percent of the population, it's really hard to get your story out. You just don't have the numbers. It's that low. It's, it's that one, low. One percent. Maybe one point five. Unbelievable. So we're we're right right at the bottom in terms of numbers of population, but we're still here. And that's a big story that we always stress is went through this incredibly difficult history in the last 500 years, but we're still here as a people. When do the Ottawa or the Adawa tribe, as we know them today, uh, first locate to this area? And second question kind of pertaining to that is, are those two names synonymous? I'll give you my professional uh, opinion on when the Odawa came. This, again, could vary from community to community, uh, that the Odawa people have always been here. I can't put a specific date on exactly when, but I do believe that we are indigenous to the Great Lakes and to Michigan. There's different beliefs and stories about when we settled here, and I can't tell those stories right now because there are certain cultural protocols about um, creation stories. And one of those is you can only talk about those when there's snow on the ground. There's no snow on the ground right now. It's this late in the year. And also, I don't have permission to tell these stories. So these are sacred stories. They have a lot of uh, meaning, a lot of power to them. But I do want to relate to the listener that those stories do exist, that we were here first. And as one elder uh, very uh, simply put it, you know, our time is in a circle. You know, there's no beginning, there's no end. So it's not really the date that's important. It's the events that are important. And the event being that we are here and never left. You know, you, you don't see Odawas in the desert or, you know, in the swamps of Louisiana or yeah. in the Arctic. We've always been in the Great Lakes. I mean, everything was here that we needed. And to your other question about Odawa and Ottawa, in my mind, it's all pronunciation. Yeah, I'm not going to get offended if you call me in Ottawa. I've been called worse. Um, but <laughs> We hope to call you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's more of an anglized pronunciation. Uh, the original pronunciation is Odawa. Okay. What other tribes uh, do you know that may have come to this region either to settle or for the natural resources? I think in George's film, you refer to this as fishing camp. You know, this, the, the resources here in the summer are, are quite spectacular, again, as you described in the, in the documentary. And I ask this because there's a site on the web, again, Western documentation, uh, which may or may not correlate, obviously, with the true facts. But they quote the number as being as high as 100 different various tribes that have come and utilized this area for food over thousands of years. I can't. I can't go that way. I mean, no, I don't That's, think... That they, number just seems too high. It's just too high. There wasn't hundreds of tribes that were coming here. It was the Odawa, and there was a tribe here called the Mushkodesh, a pre-contact. We don't know exact date, maybe 1,300, 1,400. Uh, this was a tribe that came in, settled in the area at the blessing of the Odawa, and they, they were here for, for quite a while along the western coast of the Lower Peninsula, and things got got ugly, and there was a war between the Odawa and the Mushkodesh, and the Odawa drove them out. So that's one very prevalent story about another tribe being here. And then there was also um, the Iroquois Wars in the 1600s that actually pushed the Odawa out of this area. And it's the only event in recorded history that pushed the Odawa out of Michigan for about 40 years. And then the Odawa regrouped with the Ojibwe and Nipissing, and they started to take the fight to the Iroquois and pushed them out of Michigan, and were actually going into New York and striking their villages. And then a peace was settled in 1701, the Great Peace of Montreal, and the Odawa you know, were able to settle more in peace at that point, uh, at least from other tribes. Peace wasn't permanent by any means. It was 
a whole slew of subsequent wars with the British and then the Americans. So, um, but in terms of other tribal communities, it's pretty much been the Odawa. And that was my next question. You know, were there any territorial conflicts? And I had heard of some stuff about the the Iroquois, but yeah. Yeah, there was all kinds of conflicts. And this is a misnomer that we try to erase that, you know, for one, that not all tribal people are homogeneous. We're not all one tribe. We're not all one people. We don't all speak the same language. We don't all ride horses and live in teepees. And that's just this idea born out of Hollywood in the early 20th century. And it's been really hard to get over. You know, I've, I've gone to programs and presentations and it's as, as if individuals are expecting that visual. You know, like, where's your costume? I'm like, I don't have a costume. You know, I, I have these blue jeans I really like and this T-shirt that fits and tennis shoes. And, Another Michigan tuxedo. Yeah, and, you know, I, I got plantar fasciitis really bad in one foot, so I wear tennis shoes all the time. So, you know, they but they want this image. And sometimes there's, you know, this visible disappointment about this. Like, you know, we thought you'd look more native or look more Indian. I'm like, wow, you know, it's... Uh, We've just met in two minutes and you're, you're labeling me and putting me in these boxes. Try to joke with it, you know, but also relay that this is a really uncomfortable exchange and it's racist and this isn't how you started off. But that's, that's out there, these stereotypes. So that's just something I want to get out there right away. And um, going back to, you know, this other, you know, little known history of intertribal conflict that tribes fought with each other often and viciously and oftentimes over resources, oftentimes over territories, uh, personal beefs, you know, something happened and they were seeking justice or vendetta. But it wasn't on the scale as other parts of the world where they would send thousands of people. You know, this is like 20 guys and or maybe 100, you know, these war parties. And, you know, reading these early accounts, a war party might start out with 500 and by the time they get to the fight, there's like 50. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't have this allegiance as other nations, you know, these warriors were completely individual, completely, you know, sovereign in their own right. And if they had a bad vibe and say, no, this isn't going good, they'd leave and nobody held it against them. But things changed, you know, with Europeans coming in and they were bringing those big numbers. Yeah. And so these tribes were fighting with each other pre-contact, but they also were fighting with each other post-contact and the Odawa fought against the Iroquois uh, we fought against the, the Sauk and the Fox. So we, fought, we fought against the Winnebago's, also known as Ho-Chunks. Uh, we fought against the Chickasaws in the south. So basically everybody around us we fought with, except the Potawatomi and the Ojibwe. They're part of the Anishinaabe, like family. So there was no major conflicts with them, but everybody else at some point. Then, we were, you know, peace would be reached. Um, there'd be reconciliation. And it, the, the fluidness of these communities was pretty astounding where... You know, one season you're at war with a tribe, but then you're allies with them against, you know, a larger perceived threat such as the British or the Americans. So the allegiances were shifting pretty, pretty swiftly at times, especially in the late 1700s. But by that time, the United States was coming in and they were they were a, a bigger threat than any tribe. Sure. And you have to imagine this area with, with other resources would be a desirable place just like it is now. Fresh water. Fresh water, fresh air. Fresh air, uh, fresh water. Food food uh, but the water you know it's that fresh water it's it's it you know and with that being here and the abundance of fishing and the farming wasn't too great up here down south it was it was really good you know grand rapids area kalamazoo but up here it's it's we all know what it's like it's you know it's long winters and not the best for growing but man do we have the water yeah 
how did the Adawa look at the um, the initial response to the invasion of the early European voyagers and fur traders coming through in the in the early 1600s? In George's film, you refer to this uh, fittingly enough as as the storm, you know, which it was, which it was. It's been this really telling to read through the records, you know, from native and non-native sources, the the pieces of this puzzle. Yeah, I, I use that analogy quite often. The storm because it was bringing this irreversible change to the to the tribe and the and the environment and oftentimes storms are are violent they're unpredictable they're long lasting and that's what was happening in reality with all these different european nations coming in and they were claiming lands you know this is now new france and part of the british empire and now the united states and not really giving any regard to the tribes you know they're an afterthought a lot of times and they were just going to war for land and resources and from you know, my my humble understanding and research of this, the Odawa seeing the French as not the threat that the British are. There's this romanticized version that all the French and natives got along, and that's not the case. It just isn't. And, you know, the Odawa were on the verge of going to war with the French many times, and it just didn't happen, a large, largely because of the French marrying into Odawa families. There was family ties, mm-hmm. and those often were the ties, those overrode politics and everything else is family. So the French, they did this and other Europeans weren't doing that. They weren't marrying into tribes. Right. You know, the British weren't doing this and the Americans really weren't, but the French did. So there's all these family connections that really kept war from breaking out. So it was different with the French because there was so much um, kinship. I wouldn't say it was good. And the families are good, but the, you know, still somebody coming in and saying, this is mine. Exactly. And then with the British, it just, you know, it just went further downhill. And then finally the Americans, you know, we went against, we went to war against the Americans three times, you know, Revolutionary War, Little Turtles War, and the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. So that tells you right there how that relationship started. I want to jump back just for a second. Like you said, those, uh, those stereotypes and those perceptions, how do you think the Hiawatha pageant contributed to that? That was like, what an exploitation of the Ottawa up here during that period. I mean, do you feel that way? It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I always have that like preface for a lot of this uh, history. It's, it's so complicated. You know, I've been doing some research on the Hiawatha pageant and the plays and trying to put myself in that time in history in the shoes of those people living at that time. You know, this is early 20th century. It's not a kind time for people of color. You know, we have, we're not even citizens at that point. You know, we don't become U.S. citizens until 1924. So people can't vote. They can't run for federal office. Their voices can't be heard on the scale of other individuals. Uh, the Indian boarding schools are in full effect at that point, so all of our kids are going to these institutions of forced assimilation. Very difficult time. You know, there's a lot of discrimination and racism in this period, and people, I, it's an opportunity to, to be Native, even though it may not be the Native of 400 years ago, but also they were making some money, too. You know, they were being paid to put on these productions and you know, they were the largest tourist draws in the state. And so people were going there and they were selling goods, you know, artwork and so on and so forth. So people have seen this as an economic opportunity mm-hmm. and you can't blame them for it. No, much needed probably. Much needed. So I don't want to pass judgment at any time in history, but especially this because, yeah, there's the big headdresses, the plain style, but you got to look at the time period too in, in context. And I believe in that time period, I think it was 1910, that Native people were 0.5% of the population, according to the U.S. Census. Not even 1%. Not even 1%. That quickly on, just... just. 
it's just, a couple hundred years just changed the whole changed demographic everything, everything. Yep. frank and i were talking frank Edward, you should get again uh we're talking he said there's some evidence that the uh among the early visitations of the french voyagers that the uh the ottawa and even the chippewa were actually helping the french to sustain themselves by providing them some food corn grain etc sort of like that romanticized version of the no, the first Thanksgiving. Any um, knowledge of that on your behalf? Or? Yeah, there was people helping. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's people, humans. You know, you see somebody struggling, you're going to want to help them, ideally. You know, no matter if they're from this different place or they look different. So they would come through and they were really struggling. They were starving. They were out in the elements with exposure and, and people were helping them. You need some dried corn and some fish and here you go. And you're going to freeze to death. So you might as well come <laughs> in my wigwam so you don't. So that was going on for sure. And it just was at these different levels in different communities. And the Odawas just seemed to click in right away with the early French. And a lot of this was through economics. The Odawa were the traders of the time period. They were just masters at navigating the Great Lakes and all the rivers. And they had these far-reaching trade networks that pre-existed European contact. And they were going up into Winnipeg, they were going north of Lake Superior, they were going out in Chicago and trading with all these different tribal nations, food, goods, information, so on and so forth. And the French seen this right away. Like, these people are linked in everywhere. We want to link in with them. And that's really, in my opinion, how the relationship started. So the Jesuits were there to, you know, convert and save souls. Uh, but at the same token, you know, these voyagers are saying, this is, this is the people we want to get in with to make sure that we can get access to these areas for, for trapping and, and food and so on and so forth. Because back then, if you didn't have the permission, you would be killed. <laughs> you know, you're going to my backyard and taking my resources. Uh, you might get a pass, but you might not. So they seen that these people have the pass. Apparently throughout everywhere. They, and largely because, you know, the Odawa were just these masters at building large canoes and getting out on the water. They were doing things other tribes really weren't doing in terms of, of travel. And some of these canoes could hold up to four tons of goods. That's When I heard that number, I was blown away. It's nuts. All the ships that have sunk in the Great Lakes, it's very hard to document one of the larger Adawa canoes sinking in the Great Lakes. It's such effective design. But yeah, when I heard that number of tons. Tons. In a birch bark you know, canoe. Or... Yeah, we know what birch bark is. It's little thin bark. And you know they would manufacture these vessels, essentially, on the Great Lakes. And they were scientists. They could read the weather, you know, they knew all this. They had to. They had to, you know, and they weren't out there in bad weather. And if they had to hunker down for several days, that's what you did. And then you just loaded everything back up and hit hit the highway, essentially. So there was that going for us, and that played a big role in our history. And, and the French, like you said, must have immediately identified the fact of how adept and acclimated the Adawa were to this area, which is, like you said, especially the winters we used to have. I mean, you know, you got to you know what you're doing out in the woods. Or you, you're, you're a victim quick. Yeah, you, and this was all based on preparation, but also your communities. That If you got in a bad position, you had all these communities like, hey, help me out. You know, do you have any extra food? Can I take shelter? I mean, those relationships were so key throughout everywhere in the Great Lakes. You could be traveling, you know, hundreds of miles away, but run into a third cousin from your father's side. And yeah, he has a little extra food. He's going to, that hospitality was, was, I don't want to say a given, but it, it was very prevalent. Mm -hmm. And that was, in my interpretation of history, one of the worst insults was being stingy or greedy. That, that was a huge insult. Like, you're not sharing. You know, that's not right. We, we share. That's what we do. And the sign of status and wealth 
for many um, chiefs was actually what you don't have because you gave it all away. You might get all these gifts, you have all this food, and you just freely give it away before yourself. So that selflessness was one of the hallmarks of a good leader. And somebody who had a lot wasn't seen favorably. Like You have more than what you need all the time. My wife's family's from Belarus, and it's, it's about the simple things. And again, her, her uh, sense of community in her, in her country is that you know graciousness to guests and giving away that food that you may not have enough for your family, but guess what? If there's a guest knocking on your door, they're going to be the first one that's going to be served. So Absolutely. That was how it was, and it still is in many ways in the community. That, that hospitality and sense of giving is still very much there. And when it isn't, you know, my mom is for sure going to say, she, you know, corrects me like, you know, you, you didn't bring them in or, or she comes to the house like, where's your food? <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, there's some like chips and nuts in there. It's like, no, you should have some food on hand. You know, because somebody stops by, you got to feed them. And, you know, just that sense of spontaneous visits. I mean, I remember growing up in Cross Village and we never knew when somebody was going to stop by. And it was just such a welcome thing. And, you know, people would come and visit and just sit and talk for hours. And there was no phone dictating the conversation, no tablet, no computer. It was cups of coffee, um, cookies, and, you know, whatever was cooking. You know, that that was the thing that was binding people. And so people would come in and it was it's like a real honor, really, you know, that people would take time and travel and come and stay with you for however long you never rush them either like oh you're kind of getting long in the tooth or long-winded here you know i gotta wrap it up no they that's when you know these really rich stories will come out and people talking about their grandparents or how it was like 20 30 50 years ago those histories that you can't find anywhere else and so now in my position i'm really leaning on my mom you know what did so-and-so say or who is that person and she's like, well, you were there. Don't you remember? I'm like, I was seven or eight. I don't remember, but you do. And, and then so it's I'm really fortunate again. You know, I can, put, you know, go to her and, you know, say because those people are gone now. That's how I feel in my family. You know, they're just not there. And, and it's been really uh, sobering and gratifying going through the archives and um, projects and seeing a newspaper article like Salman Francis or Sam Kiwi. These people I knew as a real young boy and there they are, you know, doing their thing. I'm like, I, I know that person. And. It's just pieces being put together and, and trying to, you know, put more of those pieces together through my work, um, whether it's newspapers or reports or dissertations or just collecting stories from people. It all feeds into the, the story of who the Odao are. Eric, I haven't even uh, been able to ask you about half of the questions I prepared for you today. Uh, can you join us again to discuss more of the history of Northern Mission's indigenous inhabitants? I would love to. I'm Christopher Struble, and I invite you to join us next time on Tales of Northern Michigan's Past as we continue our conversation with Eric Hemingway of the Little Travers Bands of Adawa Indians. And thank you, Eric, for all the great uh, information today. Pleasure's mine. <laughs>